0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 205 for August 15th, 2010. Recorded August 14th. I like text editors. That's no secret. But why a text editor instead of a word processor? Well, that really isn't a new question either. It's one that I've asked and answered before. I've mentioned that I use a text editor, usually UltraEdit, when I'm writing TechBiter. I do this because I can't apply formatting in a text editor. I have to pay attention to the words and the message. UltraEdit isn't the only choice, though. I started writing this week's program in the TED notepad editor. TED is an acronym for Tiny Editor. You have choices when you pick a text editor, and this segment is about some of those choices. TED, as I mentioned, stands for Tiny Editor, so it's a very basic editor. You'll see a picture of it on the TechWriter Worldwide website. Pretty basic, not much more than Notepad, but there are more features than you get in Notepad. The next one I looked at was the RJ text editor. Now, this one's interesting because it starts like a Windows Explorer function. Looks just like Windows Explorer. Except when you select a file, it morphs into a text editor. And that text editor is pretty powerful. It has a lot of functions. The next one I examined was Notepad++. Notepad++ reminds me somewhat of UltraEdit because it offers the tabbed interface that I find quite useful... This application also has many additional features, such as macros, and that's quite a feature for a free program. The PS Pad free text editor also has a tabbed interface, and it highlights an entire paragraph as you're typing it. Of all the free text editors I've looked at, this is the one that reminds me the most of UltraEdit. EditPad Lite is yet another very basic text editor, and as is increasingly the case even with free applications, it has a tabbed interface that allows the user to switch from one document to another with ease. Each of these applications has features that the others don't. For example, EditPad Lite automatically highlights every instance of any word you select. I'm not quite sure why I would want to do that on a regular basis, or even an irregular basis, but the person who wrote the application apparently needed that functionality. I am absolutely certain that none of these free editors will cause me to stop using UltraEdit, because none of them has the wide range of features that UltraEdit offers. But each of them does have something to recommend it. I've used each to write parts of this report, And I'm impressed by the features that are available from the editors that are literally priceless, although not at all worthless. You can download any of the editors. You'll find links to them from the TechBiter Worldwide website. That's for the TED Editor, RJ Text Editor, Notepad++, PS Pad, and Edit Pad Lite. Be sure to check them out if you think you might be able to use a text editor. This week's program has kind of a utilitarian bent. I was thinking this week about backup. Technology is moving so quickly that sometimes it's important to reconsider the way we accomplish things, just to see if maybe there's a better way to do them. I did that with my backup system because my goal is to create the most foolproof backup system possible, but still to keep the operation as simple and automatic as I can. In the past, I've recommended a Cronus backup with external hard drives that I store at the office, and I still think that's an excellent solution in many cases. Even so, I no longer use a Cronus, but I do still use a series of USB disks. In the past, I have recommended the online backup service called Carbonite, and I continue to use it, but in a slightly different way than I have in the past. And in the past, I have maintained a local USB emergency backup that can be used to restore a file or to move the entire operation from my desktop computer to a notebook computer, should that be necessary. That continues to be a key part of my backup strategy, and I've even extended this part of the system, despite my absolute statements that any backup stored at the same location as the system it's backing up isn't really a backup. I said I had reconsidered Cronus. And here's why. Among its other talents, Acronis can create a disk image that can be restored to a boot drive. Although I had successfully tested other Acronis backups, I had never tested booting to the Recovery CD and activating a USB-based backup. So, several months ago, when an Ubuntu update scrambled the boot manager and I tried to use the Acronis Recovery CD, I was surprised to find that it doesn't recognize USB keyboards. The computer would boot but I could do absolutely nothing in terms of restoring any data. My bad. I should have tested that. But nobody makes computers these days with the old PS2-type keyboard connectors, and even if Acronis now does support USB keyboards, they were rather late to the party. That caused me to think of other possible issues, and the most significant of those is the fact that Acronis uses a proprietary format for backup files, That's not unusual. Most backup programs do use proprietary formats. But what that means is that the format may change from one version to another, and file formats may not be compatible with other versions of the program. Or if the company goes out of business, the backup could become inaccessible. So I started looking for a backup system that would simply copy files to a backup device or create a zip file. Hold that thought. We'll be back to it in just a bit. But for now, let's move on to Carbonite. Carbonite is the online backup service that I use, despite the fact that I've left the computer on 24 hours per day, seven days per week, since the 10th of May. That's three months. I have never had more than 60% of my files backed up by Carbonite. This is probably because Carbonite is backing up some large files that change frequently. Most of those files are on the C drive. When I told Carbonite to stop backing up drive C... The percentage of files backed up jumped to seventy percent. It's currently just shy of ninety percent, and probably will reach one hundred percent shortly after mid August. My goal then is to have carbonite back up critical files, work files, downloads, music, photographs, things like that. These are the files that will be hard, if not impossible, to replace. But I've told Carbonite to ignore everything on drive C, which is where the operating system is, along with all applications, and and a lot of configuration files. Now hold that thought. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Sitting beside the computer is a 500 gigabyte USB hard drive. I use AlwaysSync to copy all current files to that drive. What I mean by that is websites, music, photos, email, downloads, passwords, configuration files, graphics, typefaces, essentially everything. In most cases, changed files are committed to the backup within 10 minutes. If needed, I can unplug this drive from the desktop and attach it to the notebook in less than a minute. Even though this really isn't a backup, because it sits right beside the computer, I do consider it to be an important part of my backup strategy. So how do these various strategies converge? Backup serves several purposes. In an ideal world, you would be able to plug in a drive with a complete and current image of everything on your computer and recover the operating system, the applications, and files in just a few seconds. Put in the most basic terms, that ain't going to happen. So, my second choice is to have a system that allows me to recover documents, data, images, typefaces, and settings quickly. This may require that I reinstall the operating system and all applications, but I know how to do that. I know that I can install an operating system, a couple of browsers, my email program, Microsoft Office, and Adobe's Creative Suite in two hours or less. And let's face it, that takes care of most of my needs. I'm back and pretty much in operation within two hours. I won't have a fully optimized computer for a week or more, but at least 80% of what I need will be functional within the first six hours after a disaster. And that's not a guess. It's a number based on experience. The first 80% of the recovery takes the first 80% of the time. The remaining 20% of the recovery takes the other 80% of the time. And no, I didn't misspeak. My first priority has to be the immediate recovery of critical files. The most common problem is user error. The user deletes an important file or modifies a file and decides the previous version is better, accidentally edits a file that... Well, let's face it, you opened the file, you intended to save it under some other name, but you did a bunch of editing, and then you saved it under the original name, and then you think, oh no. Well, that's where my emergency backup drive comes into play. And that's why I have now set a partition on one of the computer's internal drives as a special backup. It's why I have added a second external hard drive. It's why I continue to use the original external emergency backup hard drive. Disk space is almost free today. When it looked like I would need to use my notebook computer to store iTunes files, I bought a 500-gigabyte external hard drive. Apple finally updated iTunes, and I was able to move the files back to the desktop. So that left a 500-gigabyte drive sitting on my desk as surplus. Surplus. I also had 200 gigabytes free on an internal partition, and, where Linux used to be, an available 100-gigabyte partition. So that's the long way of saying that I had a lot of available disk space. You probably do, too. Disk space really is cheap. I've seen two terabyte drives for around $100. If you lose data these days, the fault has to be entirely yours. The challenge is the C drive, though. It contains the operating system applications and a lot of settings. If you can't count on being able to automatically restore everything on the C drive, maybe you can at least make recovery easier. What, for example, if you backed up the C drive in a way that allowed you to just copy files from the backup to a new C drive? And that's where a new program, I found, comes into play. Louis Cobian was born in Santa Clara, Cuba, in 1969. He studied at the University of Havana and then at St. Petersburg University in Russia. If you suffer from xenophobia, that's probably enough to stop you right there. But Cobian is now a citizen of Sweden. And he has created a backup application that you may use for free, even though it is no longer an open-source application. Cobian's backup application can write ZIP or 7z files, or it can just duplicate a directory structure on your backup drive. Both ZIP and 7z formats can be read by many applications, but simply recreating the disk structure is even better. To recover files, just drag them from the backup media to your hard drive. So, my multi-part backup system addresses several key issues. First, immediate recovery of files that have been damaged or deleted. Files are on local backup. They can be recovered in seconds. Data recovery, number two. If the file is no longer available locally, off-site hard drive backup is available, and all critical files are also backed up to Carbonite. And point number three, the operating system. It will need to be reinstalled, true, but settings are backed up both locally and to off-site drives. So, Cobian Backup has now become an important part of my backup strategy. On the Techbiter Worldwide website, you'll see some screenshots of an installation of Cobian Backup and setting it up for a first backup operation. If you want backups to run at specific times, you can even schedule them. If not, you can do what I do, at least currently, and just run the backups manually. As with most backup programs, you get to choose specific files to include or exclude. I have excluded files such as file, sys, the hibernation file, PageFileSys, the paging file, and the recycle bin. If I've thrown it away, I probably don't need to put it on backup. A backup consisting of some 180 gigabytes of files from drives E, F, and G consumed about two hours. I've set the backup type to be differential, which means that only new and changed files are backed up on subsequent backups, so each additional backup takes typically three to five minutes. So far, I have four backup sets defined in Cobian Backup. There's drive C, less than 60 gigabytes, to an internal drive, then there's drive C to the external drive. Drive D, about a 175 gigabyte backup, goes to an external drive and also to Carbonite and then drives E, F, and G, about 182 gigabytes going to an external drive and also to Carbonite. No single backup system does everything that you need to do, at least not one priced or designed for consumers. To protect all of the files on your computer, you need a multi-part backup strategy, and I think Cobian Backup is a pretty good part of that strategy. I'd give it four cats. and Backup, a free backup system that does what you need to do, It's tempting to give this application five cats, but keep in mind that a rating of four indicates this is a good, solid performer. If Kobe and backup saved some basic user settings and reported more precisely what is happening during the backup process, I probably would give it five cats. When you need to restore files from backup, you won't ever regret choosing this program because it's just a drag-and-drop operation. For more information, you'll find a link to the Copian website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. No longer is Netflix streaming video just old movies that you'll watch only if you can't find anything else to watch. Netflix will pay about $1 billion to gain access to files from Paramount Pictures, Lionsgate, and MGM. Netflix continues to show that it's willing to be ahead of the curve. Starting September 1st, Netflix subscribers will have access to many more streaming movies. The company clearly sees a future in which DVDs will be less important than immediate online video. Whether that future is five years off or just one, Netflix intends to be ready. Currently, one of the company's major expenses is envelopes, processing, and postage for physical DVDs. It amounts to about $600 million per year, according to industry insiders. Instead of paying for postage and all those supplies, Netflix could pay for the rights to current films and deliver them electronically. Hmm. Netflix has shown a keen interest in streaming video since about 2007. Streaming is available on a limited basis, even to customers with the $9 per month economy package. Netflix appears to be trying to insert itself where pay TV is. HBO, for example. This creates a new window for movies, and Hollywood has shown some interest in it. Can you stream a first-run movie that's still in theaters without cannibalizing theater income? Can Netflix provide a new income stream for the production companies? Currently, you'll find more questions than answers. No matter what, though, Netflix is putting a lot of pressure on cable operators. Google seems to be picking evil these days. Google says its plan to kill net neutrality that it hatched with Verizon will save net neutrality. This reminds me of the possibly apocryphal statement during the Vietnam War, to save the village we had to destroy it. It also reminds me of Newspeak as described by George Orwell in the novel 1984. Up is down, left is right, war is peace, and of course we have always been at war with East Asia. Facebook doesn't agree with Google. The social networking site is a success because the Internet is open. AT&T, as expected, calls the arrangement between Google and Verizon a reasonable framework. AT&T would earn enormous profits if that proposal is allowed to be put into effect. The New York Times quoted media mogul Barry Diller as calling the proposal a sham. Net neutrality holds that all Internet users should have equal access to all types of information online. Does that seem reasonable? Verizon thinks not, and Google now seems to agree that it would be a good idea for companies to be able to give priority to some sources or some types of content, and to charge customers more for other types of content. Please, if you haven't yet expressed your opinion to the Federal Communications Commission, now would be the time to do so. If you feel that open communication via the Internet is valuable, let the FCC know. And let me quote Joni Mitchell here. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.